Welcome to Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Very happy today uh, to be joined by Curtis Foster, one of my favorite wild players in the history of me covering this team. This is crazily my 16th year covering the team. I got to cover Curtis twice on the Minnesota Wild. Once my first four seasons covering the Wild, uh, starting in 2005 to I think about 2009. And then uh, he was actually traded back with Stefan Veilloux uh, about five years later. Uh, I remember still to this day, I was in Dallas and the Wild traded Merrick Jedlitsky to the New Jersey Devils. And in that deal back was Curtis Foster. Um, it's been an interesting first couple weeks of the Minnesota Wild season going into two nights game against the Los Angeles Kings. They are four and three. They're trying to get off the schneid. An interesting stat. Teams that lose game one into game two in the West this year. Uh, in these little two-game sets are 9-1-2. and two. So we'll see if the Wild could be the ones that respond this time. Uh, Dean Evison has absolutely changed all the lines tonight. Um, we're going to see Yul Eriksson-Eck get promoted for the first time this year. That is leading goal scorer, Yul Eriksson-Eck, to all of us. Uh, he will play between Kirill Kaprizov and Marcus Johansson. We'll have a Parisi, Bukestead, and Fiala line. Nico Sturm will move from the fourth line to third line center for the first time this season. He's been playing wing. He'll be between Jordan Greenway and Marcus Foligno in a fourth line of Nick Benino with uh, Victor Rask on his left and Ryan Hartman on the right. Um, the biggest storyline so far this season, uh, lack of centers. Uh, I wrote about it in a column a couple days on The Athletic. Highly recommend reading that. But really right now, that is the biggest thing that Dean Evison's going to have to figure out here is how to navigate these centers until maybe Billy Guerin gets some, some help at some point this year. Um, huge game for the Wild, in my opinion, against the LA Kings. I know we're only eight games in, but four in a row coming up against the Colorado Avalanche. The Wild had a soft schedule to begin with, opening with two games in LA, two games in Anaheim, home against San Jose for two, and now LA for two. That is uh, tw eight games in a row against teams that didn't make the playoffs last year. Well, now things start to get a little tougher. Four in a row against Colorado, two in a row against Arizona, two in a row against St. Louis. Those are a huge part of the stretch here. And as we know, in a division where you play only seven teams all year, 56 games, if you get behind, it is going to be almost impossible to catch up. I think you will really enjoy uh, this Curtis Foster uh, podcast. We talk a lot about his days coaching uh, the Kinston Frontenacs and the Ontario Hockey League and also the Peterborough Peets before that. We talk about his uh, his uh, sense of Marco Rossi and Ryan O'Rourke, Damien Drew, three wild prospects that he coached against in the OHL. We talk about his broken femur, obviously, and the class of the San Jose Sharks and the wild trainers and Doug Risebrow to help him get better. We talk about Miko Koivu, one of his best friends. He was in his wedding. Um, and all the time that they have together. And he'll tell you about the real Miko Koivu. We talk about Stefan Veilloux, Derek Bugard, Jacques Lemaire. It's a really fun podcast and, a, and a one that we really think you'll enjoy. It's the 20th year anniversary. I think what we're going to do here from the rest of the season on here is try to get some really good players and maybe coaches from the 20-year history of the Minnesota Wild on this podcast. Next week, we're talking to potentially having Kyle Brodziak on. But without further ado, here is former Wild defense Curtis Foster. Very happy to be joined by one of my favorite players I've ever covered. I've actually covered him twice with the Minnesota Wild. He played 405 NHL games. I believe he's the only Wild rookie in history in his Wild debut to score two goals in his first game. Um, would that be right? 
would you have been a rookie when you played with Minnesota there, Curtis Foster? Yeah, I'd only played five games, I think, total, or maybe three games total before that. So, I, yeah, I would have been considered a rookie. Yep, yep. So, two goals in your first game against the Calgary Flames, if I remember correctly, right? Uh, no, it was the Nashville Predators. <laughs> there we go. I'll never forget. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was very memorable. Um, yes. But, no, uh, two, two cannons from the, uh, from, the, from the blue line, which was obviously what you were uh, known for. Huge uh, six-foot-five frame. Uh, played many, many years in the NHL, even after Minnesota. But then you were actually traded back. Uh, I remember where I was in the press box in Dallas when Merrick Jadlitsky was traded to the New Jersey Devils, and you came back with Stefan Veilleux. And I think, I think, Curtis, you're one of uh, you know a number of players that I got to cover twice. I, Mark Parrish is one of them, mm-hmm. uh, Chris Stewart, Philip Kuba, I believe, obviously Prosser. Yeah. Um, what, what was that like, getting back? I'm sure you think your wild career is forever over, and then next thing you know, you're back here uh, in Minnesota. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the first four years were four years I'll never forget. I mean, it's probably my... The, you know, the one city I, I, you know, always feel like is a second home for me. You know, my wife and I, we spent four years there with, you know, good people, you know, the Schultzes, the Coilers, mm-hmm. you know, Tony, who, you know, DaCosta is still there, just good people. And we, we loved our time there. And, um, you know, I remember being with Jersey and long story short, I came in for the game. I thought I was playing and all of a sudden I was a scratch <laughs> and, uh, I get called in uh, Pete DeBoer's office, and he says that uh, Lou called down and said that uh, he wanted to see, uh, I forget who it was now, but another guy play. And I said, okay. And he's like, just get your workout in. That's fine. So me and Eric Bolden got our workout in and went upstairs for the first period. And you're sitting there, you know, watching the game, and I get a tap on my shoulder. And I look, and it's Lou. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. He's like, can I talk to you for a second? He said, I got good news and bad news. I said, okay, what's the bad news? He's like, well, we, we've, we've uh, decided to trade you. I said, okay, what's the good news? He's like, well, you're going back to Minnesota. And I was like, okay. Like, you know, it was like, <laughs> would have never thought that would be the team I would go, go to. But then after, you know, I went, called, you know, basically got my wife downstairs and we got in the car. And by the time we got home, we had already talked to Chuck Fletcher. And, you know, it, it was, it was excitement to go back and play with some guys that I knew, but the end of the day, you know, to be honest, it was probably 18 games I like to forget. You know, it's some of my worst hockey I think I've ever played. But it's one of those things that, uh, you know, you look back on it now and you you, you try to figure out, um, you know, why that happens. So hopefully it can help the, the kids that coach around here now if that ever happens to them again. Yeah. And let's tell everybody what you're doing now. I mean, you, you when you uh, left your pro career, which um, ended over in Germany, if I remember correctly, yep. um, you, you got right into junior coaching, uh, just uh, coached uh, Kingston um, as the head coach. Um, and, and what are the type of things that you're doing now? You, you're working with kids right now, right? Yeah. So my last year I was playing in Germany um, in Nuremberg uh, for the Ice Tigers there. And uh, in Germany, you, ha- you, you have the ability to play 11 imports every game, and we had 12. And towards the end of the year, I was scratched a little bit here and there. And my oldest son was four turning five, and he was going into grade one. And just with that and, you know, having to, you know, sit out and bag skate and all those things, I really wasn't, you know, my love of the game was kind of gone. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I decided to move on and move back home and Lucky enough, I got on with my local junior team, with a team I played for for four and a half years, uh, the Peterborough Peets, as a eye in the sky with Jody Hall, who I'm sure you remember from your Florida yep. days. And, Loved uh, him. One he, of my favorite people. Yeah, he was a good man. He brought me in, gave me an opportunity to be kind of an eye in the sky, got my feet wet. And then the next year, 
Um, I moved on to Kingston to work with Paul McFarland, who you know was in the NHL the last couple of years, and then he's back in Kingston now. And it's funny how I went to go work with him in Kingston as a D coach, and then he took my job <laughs> this year. So it's funny how it comes full circle. But uh, yeah, I just finished my third year, um, or I guess my fourth year in, in the OHL as a coach, my second year as a head coach. And now through this whole pandemic, I got let go in May. And honestly, it's it's been nice, Mike. Like, you know, when I when I retired, I, I got right into coaching. So I didn't really take a lot of time to spend with my family and I got a nine-year-old boy, Jackson, a seven-year-old boy, Charlie, and a three-year-old girl, Hallie. So um, I've been able to spend time with them. And, you know, between coaching their teams and, and working with some girls hockey around here and working with some uh, skills in the, in the boys hockey, I've been able to, you know, stay busy, which has been nice. Tell me the difference between maybe junior kids when you played compared to today's, uh, today's day, because uh, I mean, I've got to think it's a very different athlete. Yeah, it really is. I think that uh, when when we went through in junior, there was the the rule of almost like you don't get talked to. It's a good thing, you know. I remember <laughs> playing for Jacques, and you know when he wasn't talking to you, you took it as a good thing. And uh, it, it's a different ball game now, you know. Every kid, you know, you hear it from every coach at every level now that kids want to know why, and they they ask questions and they challenge you, and they, you know, at times they're, you know, the, the scare tactics don't really motivate them. You have to make them understand why they're doing things, make them understand what part of the, of the team they are, and then they start to buy into it. And um, it was, you know, a big change for me going from player to coach. But at the end of the day, my last couple of years, I started to pay a lot more attention to what our coaches were doing and working with young guys a little bit, you know, in practice or after practice. So it wasn't a huge uh, change. I think, you know, becoming a head coach was more of a big change for me. It is interesting. Like I was just watching a press conference with John Tortorella. Um, I think it was with Chris, C- Chris Simpson up on Sportsnet. So it wasn't a press conference. It was it was it was an interview, and he talked a lot about um, you know Pierre Luc Dubois and just um, you know how it is a different athlete today that they get uh, you know super sensitive. Um, you know he, he obviously didn't like that he didn't want to be there so he was watching him and and felt like he was moping and and things like that i mean is that is that the type of thing too that today's athlete you have to be super cognizant of is that it just feels like that they um you know almost feel entitled a little bit yeah i would say that entitlement is a problem in in some respect i think that you know with our group in kingston i think our gm did a very good job of weeding that out early so we didn't have those type of players but at the end of the day you want to find the guys with the most ability the most skill so you're going to run into it my biggest example of of the difference mike is you know when i grew up you would never show weakness to a coach you know a coach would Mm -hmm. sit you out you look them in the eye and almost you know you'd be saying swear words in your head at them and you, (laughs) you would you would grit your teeth and then you go work harder and i find now that you know we would see we'd see tears sometimes and we would see um, guys questioning us and, you know, just things that like blew me away, but it just showed that like today's, you know, teenagers just a lot different and, and that's fine. It it is. It's just, you got to learn how to deal with it and learn how to still bring the best out of them, even though it's just different than what you're used to. It is really to me interesting about the whole junior coaching, uh, Thing. I mean, you, you get to see some of the best of the best, and then you have players that you just know are probably never playing past junior. How do you separate when you're a head coach that, knowing that there are certain prospects that you have to play the heck out of, but there are certain guys that are there also for an experience that they're going to remember the rest of their lives? Yeah, I think that's honestly like a huge, uh, 
huge factor, you know, being a head coach where, you know, I think I took for granted my first year as a head coach on, on that sort of thing. We had a really, really poor team. You know, we didn't have a great year, but we didn't have a lot of stars. We had that Jason Robertson who's playing in, in Dallas mm-hmm. a little bit right now who um, we traded in November. Um, we had this kid named Brett Newman who had a bunch of goals we traded at the deadline. So we were really, really young and inexperienced. And it's tough when, you know, you have like last year we had uh, Martin Kromack who was drafted to LA. We had Zay Wisdom who was drafted to Philadelphia. We have Shane Wright who's kind of the next superstar coming out of Canada. So we had some bright young stars that like, you know, you see the talent and you want to work with it. You want to, you want to improve their game. But then there's kids there that, you know, don't get drafted. And then you have to find a way to keep them engaged. You have to find a way to keep them energized and make them still want to come to the rink, even though they know that, you know, maybe they'll go on to a university career in Canada after, which some guys find a way to make it from there, which it's good hockey and it's, it's great to get an education. But then there's some guys that might not even get that. And it's finding a way to make them enjoy coming to the rink. So, you know, you still keep that fire in their belly and, you know, it, it, it's tough. It really is. And I think that that's where you want to make sure that you're winning. And when you're winning and, you know, guys are enjoying coming to the rink that they kind of forget about those things and they just kind of live in the moment. Mm-hmm. How, how about running a bench? Uh, you, you've sat on a lot of benches with uh, a lot of coaches, probably like, hey, uh, how come I'm not getting more ice time? <laughs> how, how, how is that uh, transition to running a bench? How, how hectic is it? It's a lot different. I think that, you know, my eye in the sky my first year was really good because it was my first year back in the OHL in like almost 20 years. I didn't know the players. I didn't know the teams. You know, you, you run into the odd coach you you played against or you chat to, but it was a really good experience just getting my feet wet. Jody Hall did a great job of teaching me a lot of things. Um, and then when I went to Kingston, it was my first year on the bench and I was with Jay Verity, who's uh, on the bench now or on the coaching staff in Arizona with Rick Tockett. And he's a Kevin Kevin Constantine disciple from those, that, those Everett group mm-hmm. that's got a whole bunch of coaches in the hockey world. And he taught me so much, but I remember my first game on the bench where I'm actually calling forwards as a head coach. You know, as a D, it's not that bad. You get six guys, you get your matchups, you make sure that your top guys are on in certain situations, end of a game, what's, you know, it it wasn't too bad. But when I became a head coach and you're trying to get matchups, you're trying to make sure that everybody's playing, you're trying to make sure that uh, you're getting the right guys on the ice at the right time. It was a, it was eye opening. And then, it starts to make you understand that that's why you have the guy standing beside you. You know, that's where I started using my assistant coach a lot more of, you know, watching mm-hmm. their bench, you know, he's doing the teaching when guys come off. Cause in junior, I think there's a lot more interaction between the players and the coaches because they're so young and they're so green that they're learning the game and they're learning little things as you go. And they need reminders constantly where I find in the NHL, a lot of that stuff is ingrained in the players already. And so uh, for me, it was using my assistant coaches more to do a lot of teaching where I'm focusing on the game and focusing on the matchups and focusing on, you know, the clock and what you need. And, you know, there was definitely times where you make mistakes. I mean, I was young. It, it was my third year coaching. And after a game, our GM would be like, hey, why'd you call a timeout when the TV timeout was coming? And I'm like, oh, I never even thought of that. And then mm-hmm. from then on, you know it all the time. So there's definitely things that I think as a player, you sit there and take for granted and you wonder, like, why am I not playing or why are I only playing 15 minutes or whatever it may be, where there's so much thought that goes into it as a coach that I think as a player, you really take for granted. It just shows again, uh, you saying that how easy the game is from the press box. I, I can't tell you how many times I'm 
questioning things that are going on on the bench, on the ice that uh, that an NHL head coach is doing. And then you realize, you know, it's a little easier sitting in my seat, looking down at the ice, not having all the stresses of all the stuff that's going on the bench, all the things you got to keep track of that that we have no clue that is going even going on on the bench, you know, up in the press box. Yeah, like I, Mike, you wouldn't believe how many times kids would come off and be like, "Hey, coach, you know, Foz, what uh, what happened on this play?" And I literally have to look them in the eye because I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to lie, and I'll say, "I didn't see it. I'm sorry, I can't help you." You know, we'll look at it in between periods and I'll get back to you. And like that's because we don't have, we didn't have iPads on the bench. Like we don't have that ability. It's junior hockey. Yeah. You don't have good service. You don't have good internet. It's not that easy to have it everywhere. And there's times where you miss things. You know, penalties are called and guys are going crazy and you're like, ah, I didn't see it, you know? And like, it's funny because I, to be honest with you, Mike, I, I have you on my Twitter and, you know, the other night you had one, I think, I don't know if maybe it was you about like Rask uh, not moving his feet to get back yeah. on a goal. And, and it's funny because you say that, like you look from up top and you could see something, but then if you're on the bench, you might not see it until you watch the video. And then you watch the video, you're like, oh God, that ever looked bad. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because I think that because of the view you have, you're able to pinpoint certain things in the game that as a coach, you might talk to them after the game and they haven't seen it yet. They haven't like actually been able to like, you know, look at what you're talking about because in the game, there's just so much going on. Your emotions are high. You're trying to get the win, and then you you miss certain plays. Well, it's even for me. Uh, like like sometimes I really need to look at the video instead of just a tweet or just seeing things live. And a great example the other night is the Wilds' winning goal against, where you know I saw Brodeen live not get the puck out. I saw Johansson live reaching. What I didn't see live, which is the biggest reason why the goal was given up, was Kaprizov darted out of the zone and wasn't in position when all of a sudden the the Kings, uh, you know, turned around, had the puck, and wind up in the slot for for the eventual winning goal. And so it also shows you that you know sometimes even from my perspective, where you react immediately by throwing a tweet or looking at a GIF, you you know even I need to cool it and wait. I used to remember when Todd Richards coached the Wild Curtis, he used to always say after the game when we'd ask him a question, let me look at the tape. And I used to think it was the biggest cop out. Mm -hmm. And then the more you're around it and listening to somebody like you, you realize, no, he really wanted to see it again before even commenting on something that maybe he didn't have the immediate post-game reaction to. Yeah, it's amazing how many goals happen where in a game you think something and then when you rewatch it, um, mm-hmm. you're like, wow, like it was actually Kaprizov. Like, where are you supposed to be when they have the puck right between the hash marks and the D zone? Where were you? Yep. You're at the red line. Like, you know, like, but live, <laughs> you might not see that. And I think that's one thing that's a positive and a negative about coaching, to be honest. With you. Like, there's so much video and there's so much analytics that everything can be overanalyzed. And, there, and I think that's one, one aspect that I think helped me as a coach is remembering what it felt like to be in those skates you know when you have you know a veteran coming down on you and he walks you and you know you can watch a play like what was foster thinking but then when you actually (laughs) i was able to be in those skates so i know like hey this is the this is the teaching lesson out of it but hey it's not that easy i get it you know there's a time to get upset and get mad and challenge people but then there's also a time where you gotta i remember being in the coach's room where Thing. you know it was nice all three coaches had played so we'd all argue at times but we'd all be like you know one was a center one was a winger and I was a D so we all kind of had our own ideas being like well no you're wrong because as a D it's this and he'd be like well you're wrong because as a winger it's this and it really until you start talking about it and understanding like it's just it's not that easy when it's live all the time 
You mentioned uh, you know wanting to take that next step, get a job, but we are in such an odd time, and we're seeing it now. I mean, how many interim coaches wound up having the label taken off and just essentially given a two-year deal because teams don't want to spend money? Teams aren't hiring people. Even in Iowa, instead of replacing Brett McLean, they're just like, you know what, for the rest of the year, we're going to have one assistant coach. Um, how how frustrating does that get when right now you're probably sending texts like, hey, uh, you know, player development and nobody's hiring, scouting, nobody's hiring, coaching, nobody's hiring. It, it just almost seems like everybody is in an absolute standstill, not just you, but a gazillion people. Yeah, I think it's really tough, Mike. Like, you know, if I'm being honest with you, like I have a, I've had some conversations with a couple teams, one in scouting, one in development where um, scouting would be great for my family because I'd be able to lay my head in my own bed with my family every night. Development is something I really have a passion for because I love working with D, especially and love working with young kids. And I feel like, you know, with everything I've been through in my career, you know, injuries, scratches, you know, traded, like been played on, you know, Canada teams, coach Canada teams, now coach in the OHL. There's so many things I think I can help players in getting to that next level and becoming, you know, you know, full-time NHL guys. But at the end of the day, you, you wouldn't believe how many times, you know, you talk to people that, you know, now that I'm at almost 40, a lot of the guys I play with are in the game in those positions, right? Like Sean Horkoff is in Detroit, mm-hmm. and, you know, Brad Pascal, who I've met in you know, Calgary, Jeff Ward, was, who's a head coach in Calgary, was my head coach in Manhattan when I won a championship. Like, there's, you know, Pete DeBoer I had, now he's Vegas. Like, there's so many guys that I can connect with that can help me. But at the end of the day, the constant thing I keep hearing is, until we get fans in the stands, we're yeah. not hiring more than essential. And that's what you're saying. Like, even in the OHL, Mike, right now, there's three teams in the OHL that don't have a head coach. Wow. Barry, Hamilton, and uh, I can't think of it right now. Sorry. There's another team that don't have a head coach. And maybe they haven't announced it, but it's it's such a junior hockey itself is such a uh, a low finance league where it's so gate gate driven that if there's no fans, like they're barely staying alive right now. So like nobody's hiring people until there's actually a light at the end of the tunnel. So it's, it's tough. Like it's been 10 months of, you know, you feel like you start to bug people, but you just want to keep your, your name in the conversation for certain things. Yeah. Two wild prospects, Adam Beckman and Damon Hunter in Iowa probably will have a start to the WHL, but the OHL seems completely um, you know, uh, like an unknown of what's going to potentially happen with them because of the border problem uh, up there, because of um, you know the the, the fact that it's, it feels like the uh, the, the um, you know health department in Ontario. I mean, it wasn't it, it wasn't at the OHL that wanted no contact hockey at some point. Yeah, they came out and said no contact hockey. Right now, we're in a full lockdown for two more weeks, where like we're not even supposed to leave our house unless it's essential. So like it's tough to see a light at the end of the tunnel for these players. Like a lot of players, not a lot, but players are, you're starting to see more and more are going overseas to play junior hockey anywhere they can, or like a third pro league just to get playing because like there isn't an ice surface in our town, which has eight, nine, 10 ice pads. There's not one open right now. So if you're a junior wow. player in Peterborough, you can't even skate unless you're on a pond. How, how worried are you that, that, that the, key development time that these players need is being sort of wasted here that guys aren't getting in you know not just junior age kids playing games but kids you know this is a lot of time they're not on the ice these are a lot of if you are a prospect these are this is a lot of time 
where you're not getting in games. I, w- I was just looking at the Wild Taxi Squad players, a guy like Louis Belpedio. This is a huge year for him, and he's stuck in a taxi squad, not even getting to play in the AHL. Um, you know, that this seems like a really stressful time for kids of all ages uh, at all levels. Yeah, like I, I completely agree with you, Mike. Like, like it, it's really nice that the AHL changed the rules, at least this year, so kids that are drafted, like a Zade Wisdom who played with us last year in Kingston, who's only 18, at least he can go to Lehigh Valley and practice and be a part of it. And maybe he'll get the opportunity to play games. Like that helps. But if you're Shane Wright, who's 16 years old, there's a chance you're going to miss a full season of hockey. And like you can do as much skills and development and training as you want, but nothing beats playing games. And it's tough. Like I think, and that goes right through to my son's age at like seven, nine years old. Like we're talking about like my, this is a, like small potatoes compared to what, what you're talking about. But like my son is seven. He made the local rep baseball team this summer. This could, it could be two full summers of him not playing a game. Like, and you know, it's not just games are important, but like learning the game is so important. And like at that young age, like, it's almost it's it's crazy to think that it could be two full years, not years, but summers, where they're only able to just practice. I think this is a story that I'm going to have to work on, especially like I was watching again the Taxi Squad today, and the, the Wild have a kid named Luke Johnson, 26 years old. I think a lot of people just look at him as just a minor league uh, center, but he he's a good player, and you know as well as I do, Curtis, that if he's just on the Taxi Squad all year. Guys in Iowa like Duham and Dewar, they're gonna they're gonna pass them. You know that that's just the way it works. Prospects pass each other, and I've got to just think that it's 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 a it's a really you know I understand why the NHL needs taxi squads, but it just seems to be at the expense of a lot of these guys. As as um, you know, you're alluding just with children. You know, yeah. Like there was a somebody had a article today I was reading about, and I, I wish I remembered who it was, but it was a guy who was on a taxi squad who hasn't played a game yet. And so, you know, he's not playing games in the NHL, like you're saying. He's not playing games in the NHL, but he's practicing. But it's not the same. And, like, you can practice and work on your skills as much as possible, but you got to get in that game and have that feeling of making a play when you're about to get hit or making that play when you're under pressure. Like, it's, it's completely different. And you hope that guys, you know, the teams, it's so hard. It's such a, it's a drag race for the, NHL yeah. teams this year that they don't have the ability to like, Hey, let's get Luke Johnson in the lineup. Like that's, what's tough. And it, it really, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Like when it comes down to a couple years down the road and you see where some of these guys have, how they've ended up doing. Yep. Absolutely. Um, Curtis, um, I, I, this is the 20th year anniversary of the wild. I want to talk to you a lot about your wild career, and this is going to be a continuing series on uh, future straight from the sources where I talk to a lot of, a lot of my favorite people that I got to cover during this uh, 20 years of the Minnesota wild. Um, but before we talk to the wild and before I get to Twitter questions, I did want to ask you about three wild prospects that you happen to be able to coach against mm-hmm. the last uh, three or four years in the OHL. Um, let's start with Marco Rossi, the Wilds' n- number nine overall pick um, this past year. was absolutely a star for the Ottawa 67s, uh, MVP of the league, one of the great players in Canadian Hockey League. Um, tell me a little bit about coaching against Marco and what type of player he is. Well, it's funny you bring that up, Mike. Like I, I was texting you through the draft and after the draft mm-hmm. about what I thought of him. And for me personally, I thought he was hands down the best player in the OHL last year. And 
And one of the reasons why is I remember going to talk to Andre Turnier, his head coach, after a game one time in Kingston. Andre's always been good to me, and I respect him a ton, the way they play and what he's done with Ottawa. And I was like, because that night, Rossi had had like four points or something, dominated us again. And I'm like, and he's like, and he said to me, he goes, Fozzie, the thing is, he goes, it's so easy for me to put him on the ice because he, A, he works so hard, B, he plays defensively hard, and C, he's so skilled. So he's like, everybody wants to follow him. And that's, that's how good he is in the OHL. Like, he's a kid that will play, you know, first-line power play running a half wall. He plays against everybody's top line. And then he plays first-line PK, and he'll block shots. Like, he was everything. And, you know, the one thing that does hurt him, and I will say, and you know more now because you've been around the NHL a long time, is that his size, he is, he is on the shorter stature, but he's so stocky and then he's like an ad he's not an agitator but he's 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 got a little snarled to his game you know he'll <laughs> he'll whack guys back he'll get in their face and he's not scared he'll go in those dirty areas and I think he's a great great pick like I whether you know Winnipeg took him at five or or you guys took him at nine I don't think there was a bad place for him I think he's that elite yep how much do you think, um, you know, knowing him and that snore on me, how, how, how agonizing do you think this is? You know, I don't know if you know what's going on with him. And obviously the Wild have kept a lot in-house. But, you know, he came here after World Juniors expecting that he was going to be able to make his NHL debut. And the Wild uh, did a physical on him. And, and, uh, and he's not been cleared to play yet. Um, so he's just sitting here living at Thomas Vanek's house, uh, you know, being around but not being able to, to play. How, how much do you think this is just agonizing him as a, as a as an athlete well just from the way he plays i think it's, it's probably killing him inside you know because he wants mm-hmm. he's a competitive guy but the thing that's got to be frustrating is you know he goes to world juniors he plays on team austria that you know they had a tough go uh, you know they didn't have the, the the talent of other teams and he wasn't able to really show what he can mm-hmm. do i personally think so there probably was an excitement to get to NHL camp to be like, hey, now I can go. Now I'm going to play with NHL players. I can show what I can do. And then to be able to, you know, to have to wait now, it's it's got to be tough. And, you know, like I said earlier, it's such a sprint this year that, you know, you hope he gets the opportunity to show his stuff. But it might be, it might have to push him back a little bit because the Wild might not have time just to see how he does and work him in. Yeah, and I've got to think that they'll just want to get him healthy and at this point probably not burn the year. Um do, do you buy, you know, everybody always says uh, going to World Juniors is an incredible honor. It's going to be good for your future and things like that. You, you've you played in, you know, internationally for Canada, I believe in under 18 World Juniors and things like that. When you're on a team that is so overmatched, though, do you still think it's a positive to go out there and just have, you know, not even get, you know, you're chasing the puck essentially for 60 minutes and the captain of a team that's, that's sort of getting embarrassed on a nightly basis. Do you think that that is still a positive thing for the future of your career, or, or you know, what I'm you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. And you know what? It's such a tough question, Mike. Like I feel like, you know, it was probably such a a big accomplishment for the Austrian National Federation of Hockey to make that tournament, right? Like you know, mm-hmm. Marco. Yes. You know, he probably was so excited to, to play for his country because they finally made it to Group A. So like. You know, there was probably a lot of heart in the decision, maybe not a lot mm-hmm. of, of, of mind, right? Like, you know, maybe, you know, you weren't thinking about, you know, you look at Nick Robertson in Toronto, he decided to stay and then he gets hurt for a shift and now he's up four weeks. Well, like, yes, should, yeah. should you have went and took in that experience 
and won a gold medal, would that put you farther ahead than staying? Like, you know, now it's such a hard decision. I think just at that point where he's from and what they accomplished to get there, I think he wanted to take part in that with his with his teammates and with the, you know, the kids that he knew earned that opportunity. So it, that's a tough, tough, you know, decision it's to a, be honest. Yep. And that's a great, great point. And that's one big reason why Bill Guerin wanted him to play is that he was such a pride to go be the captain for your home team, a, a team that, uh, you know, doesn't make world juniors every single year. Let me ask you about Ryan O'Rourke, a wild second round pick this past year. Um, you know, tough, hard nosed defenseman I hear. Um, tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, you know what? We only played uh, the Sioux twice this year, so I don't know him as well as Marco. We had to play Marco Rossi eight times the last two years, so it was like <laughs> it seemed like every third game of the season it was like the Rossi show, him and Jack Quinn. But uh, Ryan's a guy, a good friend of mine is their uh, forward coach up there, and you know they gave him a C at seventeen years old. You know, yeah. second year in the league, and he's wearing the C, and that that goes to show you something because you're not just handing those things out. You know what I mean? And um, He's a guy that I personally think that if he can figure out his own game, he's going to be a player. Like he, you know, at times he tries to play a little more offensive than I think he is. I think that he's a very good puck mover. He's got a bomb of a shot um, and he plays with a lot of jam. You know, he's competitive. He blocks shots. He plays tough. He's not afraid to fight. And I think if he plays that two way style game, I think he can be really effective. And I think, but that's a lot of kids. Like when you talked earlier about, the difference in teenagers is I learned is all these kids come from their team where they're the guy. And then they come into the OHL and all of a sudden, Oh, what? I can't just dangle and play three minute shifts. This is, what do I do? Like you, you know, it it takes kids time, especially defensemen to learn who they are before they start to have success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last guy I want to ask you about, um, I don't know how, how much, uh, Kingston and Pete and, uh, Saginaw play against each other, but the wild have a kid named Damien Giroux. He was Saginaw spirits captain the last two years, uh, 44 goals last year, 30 goals, uh, this past year. He's a first year guy for the Iowa wild this year. Do you know much about him? Well, you know what? I, we don't play them a lot either, but, uh, it seemed like every game we played them, he would crush us. And (laughs) he's the type of guy that... Like, I don't think he was a high pick, was he, Mike? Uh, no, no, he definitely was not. I'm looking right now. He was uh, like six, fifth seven, round pick fifth in round. 2018. Yep. And he's one of those guys that I personally think is just going to find a way to play. You know, he he's uh, he can play the wing. He's just, He can play center. He can win draws. Um, but for me, it's the character. Like, he never gives up. Like, he could, his team, like, they were strong the last two years. And they could be up 7-1 or down 7-1, and he is working, and he is going, and he is net front in the power play. But then he also can make plays. Like, there was a game this year, and I, no word of a lie, it's funny you bring him up. We, uh, Saginaw came to Kingston in, on a Friday this year. They played Thursday night before, beat Peterborough in a big, like, top-against-top game. They came at us, you know, you hope they're sleeping. And sure enough, they were. Perfetti was sleeping, Suzuki was sleeping, Drew was sleeping, and then all of a sudden, we had a four-goal lead. And in the third period, they put Giroux and Perfetti together, and they scored with 10 seconds left to win 5-4. to four. And we were like, what just happened? But it's just, he's the type of guy that makes guys around him better because he's just so competitive, and he's, he's got undercover skill, too. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to watch uh, him play. He's going to play on a line there with uh, Adam Beckman and Mitchell Chafee. Uh, so it's kind of three first-year guys. 
Um, Curtis, let's do this. Let, uh, let's take a break. I have so much to talk to you about the Minnesota Wild. I want to talk to you, obviously. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Miko Koivu in a Columbus Blue Jackets jersey. Uh, you and him, uh, best buddies. Uh, he was in your wedding, I believe. Um, I want to talk to you. Let's, I, I just, there's so many little things about different parts of your game that I remember, too. Uh, you know, little bizarre things that I wanted to talk to you about. And then I have a ton of Twitter questions as well. If you want to subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash straight from the source. Uh, you can get in for three ninety nine a month right now. And the best part of The Athletic is not only the writing, it is the podcast that we have throughout our platform. Uh, Curtis, I, I, I think you're around our 50th guest that I've had in the last year since we started this podcast. But uh, Ray Shiro, the former GM of the New Jersey Devils and Shane Doan of the Arizona Coyotes, joined Scott Burnside and Pierre LeBron on two-man advantage this week on The Athletic. Um, Ian Mendez, Haley Salvinen, and Sean McIndoe on The Athletic Hockey Show on Monday and Thursdays at The Athletic. Bobby Ryan's their guest uh, this week on Monday's show. Derek England, the uh, Vegas resident, uh, the former Vegas Golden Knights player. He's on uh, Full 60 with Craig Custance as well on The Athletic this week. Um, Curtis, um, let's see, where to start? 20th year anniversary of the Wilds. You were drafted, I believe, in the second round 20 years ago in the first ever draft of the Minnesota Wild where they took Marion Gabrick. Um, I was there covering the Florida Panthers. A little trade that the Panthers made that day, uh, acquiring Roberto Luongo and Ole Jokinen <laughs> at the at the you Saddle Dome. <laughs> yeah, I was I was busy. Otherwise, I would have been at that Curtis Foster presser. But t- tell me about what it is like to sit and hear your name called and and just be you know get that sort of all that hard work that you you have in juniors, and then to get that just incredible reward and satisfaction of getting your getting drafted by an NHL team. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, Mike, I was actually drafted by Calgary. It was uh, yep. um, a draft by Calgary. I spent some time in Atlanta, and then, you know, Minnesota was a free agency thing where Tom Lynn convinced me to play, to come sign with uh, the Wild. But, uh, yep. you know, that day, it was funny. I was talking to somebody, I think, yesterday about that day, and I remember sitting in the crowd, and, and you know, it was the year Rick DiPietro was number one, and... Um, it was such a surreal day. You're sitting there with your family and, um, you know, the first round goes by. Then it was, I can't remember, I think it was the first two or three rounds was the first day and then the second day was the rest of the draft. And remember the first round goes by and I always thought like, you know, maybe there's a chance first round, but we'll see. And then and then it came to Calgary's pick and I, I noticed my agent look at my dad and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then you're kind of listening and then, when you hear your name called, you're kind of like, did that really just happen? Like, did, did they just call my name? And so, you know, you get up, you hug your parents and you go down. And I was lucky enough, it was in Calgary. And yep. um, so I got to take it all in and, you know, meeting Lanny McDonald. And, you know, you always just, not second guess yourself, but you always wonder, like, is this really going to happen? And, and just that day is a day, you know, spending with my family. It was something I'll never forget. And it was, you know, you felt like, you almost didn't even realize what was next. Like, you know, you're like, I got drafted. Okay, well, I'm done playing. Life's over. You know, you're like, no, like now, now it starts. And I think now I look back on it now. That's what's uh, so intriguing is you, you don't even think about what's coming. You just live that day and really enjoy it. it. It's it is. And by the way, I don't know if I misspoke, but I but uh, 
but uh, you know, I I just meant that it was the first uh, wild draft that you were drafted yeah, yeah. in, not that you were drafted by the wild. Yeah. Um, but that, but it is that has to be an incredible, incredible feeling when you're in your hometown. Like I remember that those fans at Calgary at the Saddle Dome when they they when the Panthers traded for Roberto Luongo, and hearing the roar of the crowd at the stunness. You know, this is pre-social media, so nothing got out, mm-hmm. and so this was news. Gary Bettman gets up there. We have a trade to announce, and announces this unbelievable trade, and so. So to be at the Saddle Dome, drafted by the Flames, there had to be just an extra pride there of just you know putting on that Flames jersey, then walking around the stands and having Flames fans actually you know be excited to meet you. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Like uh, Jared Stoll was picked by Calgary right after me, and you know a couple picks after me. And I remember being up in the box with him, and you know it was funny because you know you're meeting landing mcdonald but then you know to see how excited my dad was and my dad's friend how excited they were to meet landing mcdonald and to think like you know you're in the city and this is the rink you, you might play in it was it was pretty awesome experience how is bob foster he's good he uh you know what he's uh he keeps saying he's uh five years away from retirement he keeps saying he puts <laughs> in his notice that he's retiring in five years but uh no he's doing good like he uh, he had a he was a a mechanic his whole life, uh, had a shop at the house and then he sold it about five years ago. And now he works at the front, just wears the golf shirt and he's kind of the boss and, uh, he's doing great. I think he misses, uh, the hockey. Like it's funny. Like anytime he comes to town now, like he loves taking my boys to hockey. I think he just misses mm-hmm. being that, you know, dad around the rink. And, and, uh, it's funny to hear him talk about how much my oldest, he reminds him of, of, of me and, and, uh, you know, both my parents are doing very well. The first uh, father-son sit-down that I ever did, it was at the Huntington Beach uh, Marriott, and it was with Bob Foster. I think, um, is it Francois Bouchard? Am I right? Yeah, I think so, yep, yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, Frank Walls, uh, Gino Parrish, or no, Gene Parrish, and yeah. I believe it might have been Robert Robert Schultz, the late Robert Schultz, Yeah. Um, if I remember. And it was just w- such a hoot that every time the Wild have had a father-son trip since, I always have a father-son uh, sit down. It was just, it's just, it's just always cool to see the pride of these fathers whose sons are living their dreams. I mean, it's just pretty neat. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like every, my dad has a, you know, he worked as a mechanic his whole life. So he's got a little shop in the back of his house there now. And he always has the picture and I'll never forget. It's a picture of me and him with his Jersey on that the team gave him my Jersey on underneath my stall, um, always above his toolbox. And it's mm-hmm. always there. And it just, you know, it, he would never tell you, but it's pretty cool to know how much it meant to him. And like that experience of the father son trip and then the mother son trip was, was pretty awesome. Those couple of years, like the wild, like I always say they're a first class organization and you know, I can't thank them enough for everything that, you know, they, they were able to give us when those four years I was there. Perfect segue to talk about the 20th year anniversary of the wild. You mentioned uh, Tony DaCosta, um, a lot of the trainers. I mean, that's always the cool part. The trainers always stick around. Um, those are the unsung people of the wild, right? Yeah. You know, like when I went through, you know, Donnie Fuller, I owe a yep. ton to, um, you know, he's the one who, you know, helped me a ton with my broken leg. And, um, you know, it, it, it's funny when you, you know, he's in Arizona now and Jay Verity, who was with me in Kingston, you know, they have laughs about, you know, him hiding my crutches on me and all those <laughs> things. And then I see Voter on the bench with Columbus and now he's with Miko and, you know, Tony's still in Minnesota. And it's, it, those guys are guys that, uh, you know, it's funny, like you try to teach today's teenagers and junior how important these guys are and they don't really get it. And I think eventually they start getting it and they start understanding that like 
the work and the effort these guys put in and kind of like the the more you treat them well they're going to treat you well and you're and it's uh something that uh you know tony's one of the best he's uh He's a good man. He's so respected. And, you know, I remember being able to be there my second time back, I think, for his 2000th uh, game celebration. And uh, it's pretty awesome to, to think of, like, how long he's been in the NHL. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, one, um, uh, you, you mentioned Vote, Mike Vote is on Columbus, Columbus's bench as, uh, as their medical guy. They have an equipment guy, Tim Leroy, who's their, their Tony DaCosta. And I covered him in Florida. And he's okay. still on Columbus's bench, like twenty. It's it's just it's absolutely nuts. Um, by the way, I was looking it up. I remember it. And it's Dennis Bouchard, not Francois. Yes, Dennis Bouchard, yes. Bob Foster, Gene Parrish. Francois was his brother, I think. Actually, yep. Um, Robert Schultz and uh, Frank Walls were the five that I sat down with for that father son trip. That was in two thousand six, Curtis. That is wow. absolutely nuts. Isn't that crazy? Um, yeah, I can't believe I just found the story. How, how nuts is that? Um, you mentioned the broken femur. Let's talk about that. It's still one of the scariest incidents I've ever had. Uh, one, um, the, uh, I've covered two, two or three really scary incidents in the ice. I remember Scott Mellamy going headfirst into the end boards and having to go to the hospital in Montreal. I covered Cam Stewart once getting elbowed in the head by Kevin Deneen and being out before he even hit the, I, hit the ice. And I just realized I owe Cam Stewart a phone call, a return call. <laughs> um, but the one... Yours I will never forget because of the sound, Curtis. Um, you know, and I've talked to you about this before, but the the sound, it really, it, it, it sounded like a train hitting a brick wall. Um, and I, I think it was Tory Mitchell who uh, coincidentally wound up playing for the Wild that that, uh, that was trying to beat you out on an icing. Bring, bring us through that whole experience and, and um, you know, one, the incident, but two, just the amount of effort it took to get back. Yeah, it's 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 always interesting, Mike, because it's it's funny. It's the one thing a lot of people bring up when they, you know, when they don't know me that well, but they know the name. It's like, oh yeah, you know, you're the guy that broke his leg and they changed the rule, and and I'm like, yep. And uh, I don't watch the video very much, but when people bring it up, I'm like, yeah, like it felt how it looked. Like <laughs> it's something that uh, you know I don't remember a lot. Um, I remember that game. I had a really nice assist to Stefan Veyu, and I was yep. starting to play really good for the, you know, really well for the team at that point in my, you know, in the season. And you know, to be honest with you, Mike, I don't know if I ever told you, but like the year before, I turned down a three-year extension, and it was one of the craziest things I've ever done. I, I listened to my agent and I listened to the PA, and and uh, we didn't come to an agreement. And so that year, I was playing on a one-year deal, and sure enough, I break my leg. And I remember one of the, you know, things, you know, you think about after it's all over. It's like what was I thinking? Did I make the wrong yeah. decision? And it's crazy. Like so many things go through your head, but I remember being on the ground and I remember Donnie Fuller, uh, you know, once the whole melee above me kind of dissipated when they realized I was really injured. Um, I remember him coming out and him saying, move your, you know, is it your back? And I'm like, no, you know, it's, you know, it's not my back. And he's like, okay, well move your leg. So I moved my right leg and it would move. And then I went to move my left leg and, and he's like, are you moving it? I'm like, yep. And it wasn't moving. And he's like, okay, we know it's something. So they got me on the stretcher. And, you know, I remember, you know, the ambulance ride to the hospital. I remember being in the, uh, you know, emerge room. And, you know, one of the one of the, the worst things that ever happened, to be honest with you, was when they had to put my leg in traction. It was something that they're like, you know, are you ready? And before <laughs> I could even say, yeah, they just did it. And it was like just the most excruciating pain. And I remember them actually like, cutting off my equipment and me trying to convince them not to cut off my jersey. But I still have it in my basement. I have all my jerseys hung up. 
something my wife did early on and she got got me one from every single team and then I continued to do that through my career and I still have my cut up one hanging up and it's pretty cool to look at when you show your kids or if anybody comes over and they're like why is this cut I'm like that's the one that was cut off when I broke my leg and um you know wow it's uh you know I could talk for hours on everything that went on but you know the, the biggest thing for me was when the doctor came in the next day and my wife's sitting there and you know my first instinct right away is can I play again and they're like well you know, this guy was a emerge doctor and not really a sports doctor. And he's like, well, let's worry about walking first. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. but you know, it just never, you know, I was saying to somebody the other day, like I was playing hockey for a living. So I never, there was never a point in my mind where I wanted to give up on that. You know, I just didn't know if I could do it. And, but thank God for Doug Riseborough and the, and the Minnesota yeah. Wild because they gave me that opportunity by bringing me back on a contract that they didn't have to do. Like, you know, they could have, just let me go on my way and for them to pay me a million dollars to maybe play and train me all year long. And the, the effort that, you know, Kirk Olson and Donnie Fuller and Travis, is it Travis? Yeah. Travis, yep. right. Travis, yep. like, you know, the amount of work that they put in this guy named Tom Kiff, like they hired a guy specifically just to work with me. His name was Tom Kiff. And I can't thank them enough because they gave me every opportunity and I was able to, you know, prolong my career, you know, quite a bit longer after that. So it was, uh, I was pretty lucky to play, you know, and play for a first class organization that took care of me yeah. that way. Yeah. I remember, you, didn't you take an air ambulance back to, to Minnesota eventually after a long stay in the hospital in San Jose? And I remember I visited you at, at Methodist Hospital and I did a story yeah. with you. And um, yeah, no, I, I remember like we were trying to figure out how I was going to get home. Yeah, it was like forty yeah. some hours to Minnesota, and and they rented a plane for me, and that yeah. just shows like how how first class they were through the whole. It, thing. I I actually remember it was one of the most surreal experiences of my life. I'm sitting in Methodist Hospital. I'm sitting to the right of you as you're in bed, and to the left of you is Miko Koivu. And at one <laughs> point, I'm just thinking, I'm like, Miko Koivu and I are sitting next to Curtis Foster <laughs> uh, visiting. This is just kind of weird. Um. But I do remember it was at the hospital where you had already told me I was doing a big story there um, for the Star Tribune at the time, and and you had already told me that Doug Riseborough gave you assurance that he was going to bring you back, even though that there was no guarantee you were even going to play the next day. Yeah, like and like the more I'm like now that I'm on the other side of the game as a you know in coaching, like I can't believe he did it. Like he didn't have to. It just shows, you know. I always we didn't hear from Doug very much. You know, he was a very quiet guy who, you know. Usually when you saw him, you, you didn't want to, but, you know, <laughs> he was such a first class guy that, you know, when I, when I tell people those things, they're always amazed and it just shows that, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's what the wild have always been about. Like, you know, they're always first class, they take care of their players and, you know, I, I if they didn't do that, like, I don't know if I would have played again. Yeah. I'm speaking of class, um, the Sharks. Um, I was talking to Devin Dubnik the other day, and he was telling me just how absolutely classy Doug Wilson was to him, the GM of the Sharks, who still was the GM of the Sharks back in 08 when you broke your femur. But he was saying that, you know, when the Wild traded um, Devin to San Jose, he had a modified no trade list, but San Jose was not listed on. But yet, because of everything that happened with him personally last year with his wife, um, it Doug and Billy Guerin wanted to make sure that that Devin was going to be okay with the trade, so they gave him time. And Doug had conversations with them. He let him talk to Evgeny Nabokov, the goalie coach there. Um, and you experienced a very similar thing. I mean, I mean, you were in the hospital for a while. I remember you telling me that the team sent you 
food and magazines in the hospital. They gave you a laptop so you could watch wild games. If I remember, didn't Wilson's like secretary bring your wife or then probably yeah. fiance? Yeah, good like, memory. To and from the day. hospital daily, every, like bring her lunch day. and everything. It was crazy. Every day. Yeah, yeah. Like there was a connection. You know, Doug Wilson, uh, his agent was Larry Kelly, who was my agent. So mm-hmm. I think that definitely broke the ice. But you know, from the moment I was there, it was whatever I needed, whatever my wife needed, you know, you know, they knew the the hospital food wasn't good. So do you want us to bring in food? And, you know, you know, they bring it in magazines. And I remember the one time, like you already mentioned, like him coming in and visiting and saying, is there anything I can do? I said, you know what, Doug, I would love to watch our games. Like, yeah, no problem. I'll get my IT guy in here later today. And sure enough, like IT guy there with like a power stick and the computer. And, you know, I'd fall asleep every five minutes the amount of drugs I was on. But like, to be able to watch a game and, you know, there's something to be said, like, uh, there was something, I think I sent, you know, cause Birdsey's there now and I sent Rosemary something for a charity event a couple years ago and like right away something back. And I got to know Doug Wilson Jr. a little bit the last year or so just through connections and trying to get my name out there. And, you know, it's funny to hear them talk about, like, they remember that. And they, you know, saying how they tried to trade for me four times. And, you know, I actually turned them down and contract, uh, you know, free agency twice. And, you know, it's it's pretty cool to, like, hear all these, you know, the different sides of it from that story. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that, that, that they did that because it seems like he just respects, you know, everybody, let alone guys, you know, that, uh, you know, like a guy like Devin who's been in the game as long as he has. Yeah. Um Last question on the broken femur. Um, by the way, am I imagining it? Didn't they like drop you out of the ambulance or off the gurney at the hospital or something ridiculous? <laughs> they dropped me off the table because yeah. I woke up, Mike, and I swear to God, one of the questions I asked my, you know, they're talking about my leg and the doctor's like, I had to say, I'm like, I got to ask something. He's like, okay. And I'm like, my shoulder is killing me. <laughs> there was this like hook above me where I would help myself, like pull myself up when I needed to sit up and he's like, well, we got to inform you of this. And he's like, you know, when we, we got you all dressed up, ready to go, we laid you down. It was like a, the, the table's like a T kind of where your arms are out, you know, for all the epidural stuff. And he's like, so when I turned to grab the scalp, when I turned back, you fell off the table. Oh, they had like not strapped me in or something. So I landed like all my weight on my shoulder with my broken leg and everything. They had to get me back on the table and then get me all back together. So it took like almost two hours for them to get me going again before they could actually get into my leg. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know why that just popped in my head. You know, another thing that just popped in my head is I remember how scared we were after the game. I was on the phone with the slot guy at the store tribune at like 1 a.m. back here. Jeff Rivers almost dictating to him what was going on with you. But there, another thing I remember is Chris Snow. Uh, was the one who gave us all the medical information. Um, yeah, he downstairs. stayed with me for a while. Yeah, I remember that. It was Chris Snow that, that sort of gave us all the information on you. Uh, the thing I did want to ask you about, uh, the last thing on the femur, was that you mentioned the rule change. And, you know, I, I, I mean, there were there were a c- couple guys that have horribly had this type of thing happen. Uh, you know, I think Yoni Pickin, it was one. Taylor mm-hmm. Fadoon right here in Minnesota. Eric mm-hmm. Nystrom got, uh, accidentally got him on an icing. Um but really, the rule didn't change with you. Didn't they just sort of change the rule? If I remember at the time, they changed the rule where you had to go for the puck, not the player on an icing. But it wasn't really until like like five or six years later where they added actually hybrid icing. 
Yeah, I think it was. I think it was a couple years later, and I don't. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily because of me. I think it was the combination of you know Yoni's and Taylor's and everybody that they made that decision to make that change. And for me, like I think when it came in, everybody was all worried. You know, we're we gonna lose that race for the puck, and is it part of the game we're gonna lose? Mm-hmm. And like, you don't even remember it now. Like, there still is a race. It's just a more a less dangerous race right. now. Where. You know, and the refs have gotten way better at making the correct call. And, you know, it's now it's part of the game that nobody even remembers that there it wasn't part of the game before. Right. Unbelievable. Um, it, well, I'm glad that they did get rid of it. I was I was a longtime proponent of, of getting rid of it when I was in Florida. And I remember all the old schoolers used to you know debate me on it. But uh, <laughs> and then after 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 watching your incident, I'm just glad they did get rid of it. Uh, it is funny the things I that do pop in my head. I, I I wrote about it on Twitter the other day. I think you were the first person to uh, assist on Joel Ward's goal. Um, weren't you also the first person to get it? Didn't you score an overtime winner against Montreal? And Miko Koiva yeah. got an assist uh, against Saku. Yep. Yep. yep, yep, yeah. I don't know why that just popped in my head. It's funny. I try to find that video. You know, you you can find a lot of things on Google and I try to find all the times so that I'd love to show my boys because it's probably it's probably the one goal I feel like that I've never scored you know it didn't win as a cup or it didn't win as a championship like I scored in a championship game in Germany but like that goal was something I'll never forget because it was such a big deal for Miku and mm-hmm. you know the crowd as it always is in Minnesota was unbelievable and that you know being able to score top cheese on Carey Price was something that like I'll never forget and I'm I've tried to find the video to show my boys, but I haven't been able to do it yet. Yeah. By the way, uh, before I talk to you about Miko, the one thing I did want to ask you is, uh, are you amazed at Kevin Fiala, uh, you know, who also had a broken femur? And I know every every break is different. I don't know if his was as extensive as yours. But for him to, you know, not only return, but, man, I don't know if you how much you watch of this guy, but he's got to be one of the fastest players in the NHL. I can't imagine that uh he's gotten any slower since since the uh horrific incident yeah and, and yeah he's a he's a dynamic player like man can he skate can he make plays at high speed and it just goes to show like you know and i i don't know like was his as bad as mine maybe maybe not but at the end of the day it just goes to show where we're at in you know in these teams rehabilitating these players you know yeah like nothing no stone is unturned and they, everything is about making sure these players are ready to go. And it, it doesn't surprise you that these guys are able to come back from such horrific injuries so quickly. Yep. Let me, uh, let me go through some shorter questions, but let's first ask, uh, talk to you about Miko real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the real Miko Koivu that wild fans don't know. Tell us about him. Well, you know what, Mike, it's funny. Like, you know, we're not as close now. I think, you know, when I get out of the game, it, you know, you kind of fall apart, but you know, you send the odd text here and there, you chat a little bit here and there, but, it's funny, like, I think I saw a side of him, like you said, that nobody else saw, like myself and Nick Schultz, you, you know, you saw the the humor side of him and how funny he was, and and he, there's something about hearing him laugh that made me feel, <laughs> you know, great, like, he seemed to enjoy my humor, and, you know, I never ever thought I was a funny guy, but we just seemed to connect that way, and I've never played with a guy who was such a, a proud individual, you know, he was a guy's guy and he'd do anything for you and you know he made you better every day on the ice like he could be your best friend and be and you know want to go for lunch after but that practice before he's going to take you out and he's going to he's going to go hard at you and it's funny because I had the ability to play with Saku later on in Anaheim and he was the same person like it was almost like 
it was just a little smaller version of Miko. Like, you know, the, <laughs> how hard they practice and how, how much better they make their teammates yet, you know, off the ice, they're just great guys. And, you know, Miko's a guy, you know, it's funny you, you ask about him because I, I listened to his first interview after his COVID stint, uh, on, with Columbus the other day. And it was like an eight minute interview. And I listened to the whole thing. And halfway through, I turned the, turned my phone to my wife. I said, look at him. I said, he can't look more like his dad. It's crazy. Yes. How much they look alike now. And I said to her, I said, he's still grumpy with the media. It's so funny. Like, 17 years oh. later, he still seems grumpy with the media. <laughs> yeah, I know we're getting long in this podcast, but I could talk about this forever because I watched the same video that you did, and it was hysterical. Like, the first time that somebody asked him about COVID and the symptoms he had, you could tell that how how he wanted to just say, why don't you mind your own fucking business? You know, like, oh you just knew he wanted to say that. But it technically was, like, his second ever interview with the Columbus writers, and he just, he took a deep breath, and he just answered the question, <laughs> and it was just hysterical. Like, he's, he still has that same intensity, you know? But, uh, but to, you know, to get to your point about his dad, Curtis, like, the last... um you know, one of his last games with the Wild before the pandemic was the father-son trip, and it ended in Edmonton. It was right when he was going through the decision on whether or not to waive his no-move clause. And so I got to watch him and his dad a lot together, have conversations, and they are, you know, years ago I didn't see it. Now they are absolutely identical. Yeah, and you know what? It doesn't surprise me that he wouldn't have waived it, you know? Like, yeah. He's just such a guy that, like, you know, Minnesota would be so proud in his heart that, you know, he wouldn't want to let them down, even though everybody would have probably been completely fine with him saying, I want to go try to win a championship, you know, yep. but he wanted to finish it out and he wanted to give everything he could to the organization. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me the success he's had, you know, he and, you know, even the last couple of years, he probably didn't play as much as he wanted, but it's never going to deter his effort every game. And, you know, he... I think he's the perfect guy for Columbus to bring in with all their young talent just to learn what it takes every day and the intensity he's going to bring all the time. And, you know, I think him and Tortorella are going to get along really well. Yeah, I do too. He's a Tortorella type of guy. There's no doubt about it. Old school. I can only imagine what Miko Koivu thought of a 23-year-old in Pierre-Luc Dubois asking out. That would not have gone over well. Um, by the way, I don't know why I this just again popped in my head, but I have a feeling I, I said that Joel Ward, uh, that uh, that you assisted on Joel's first goal. I meant that, that Joel's first point was on a goal that you had in Toronto. But uh, Yeah, Joel Ward, it's... It's yep. it's crazy his story because like he played with my brother in uh, university. I didn't know and that. Then, yeah, and then two years later he's playing with me in Houston, and then he gets the call and he's playing with me in Minnesota. So it's uh, his his the way he ascended up the ranks was a pretty amazing story. That's awesome. Uh, just real quick, Curtis, let's just go through some Twitter questions. Um, we just talked about Koivu. Uh, Adam asks, uh, who from the glory days of the Wild do you still keep in touch with? That's funny. Like you know, I would say that. There's nobody that I keep in touch with on a day to day. You know, I, I've been out of the game, out of like, you know, the NHL for a long time now. And, but it's amazing the people that you run into in the hockey world. You know, I remember at the draft last year, I, I, I talked to Brad Bombardier here and there. And, you know, and a lot of it is, you know, to get my name out there and keep my name mm -hmm. in his ear. And, and then, you know, when I run into him with the draft and Darby Henderson, it's not like a, hey, or shake your hand. It's like a massive hug and how are you guys? And, you know, um, you know, Nick Schultz, I keep in touch with a little bit, uh, you know, he's working with Philadelphia now. Um, 
Miko through text, but you know, it's funny. Not, not a lot of guys from Minnesota, but you know, the funny thing is, is I could write a text now to some, any of those guys or Tony and they get back to you right away, you know, cause it's just, you know, they're, they're friendships that you have forever. No doubt. Um, Kyle Stevens asks, uh, is Minnesota viewed how, how fans imagine it? So in other words, what he's saying is what's the general consensus from of the wild from players around the league, to, you know, and, and, and at looking at this as maybe a, a destination. You know what? I think personally, I think that everybody who goes to Minnesota speaks the world of it. And, but a lot of times you have to take it in before you have that view. Like, you know, some guys might want to go play in the sun. Some guys might want to go play with, uh, you know, Tampa because they've won lately. Some guys might want to go play Montreal, Toronto because they're teams that have been around since the original six. But for me, everybody speaks so highly of it, but a lot of it is coming from guys that have played there. You know, I remember when Zach Parise was going to sign there. You know, I remember that year before he's asking me questions here and there quietly about how's Minnesota yep. to play. And, you know, I remember like, you know, anybody who asked me here, like, where was your favorite place? And, you know, they all expect me to say Tampa because of the sun and you're wearing shorts. And I was like, no, like Minnesota by far. Like, it's a hidden gem. Like, for me being a Canadian, it's as Canadian as it comes. Like, you have a rabid fan base. You have every pro sports team. You have massive universities. You have amazing fishing. You have amazing golf. Like, it has everything. It's just, I, I personally think the Wild are, you know, a deep run or a championship away from being one of those upper echelon teams that are thought of in the same respect as the Chicago Blackhawks and the Pittsburgh Penguins. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, Walter Norris goes, what's your favorite, uh, your best Stefan Veilleux story? Any that pop in your head? Were you on that team that when the Republican National Convention was at XL Energy Center, we had training camp in Grand yeah. Forks? Wasn't yeah. there a Buffalo Wild Wings story where he had to eat like like those super, super hot wings and like he shows up at practice and he's like got sores all over his lips and everything. <laughs> I don't remember that one. I remember like for me, the Stefan Veilleux was always revolved around ping pong. And, <laughs> you know, him and him and Pierre-Marie Bouchard yeah. could play for hours. And you know what? We would all watch because it was so good. But there was a time where I don't know why, but he, he actually kept a set of like Roger Federer white outfits. So like a white golf shirt, Lacoste golf shirt, a white Lacoste like headband, <laughs> white uh, shorts, white running shoes and white socks that he went up to like halfway up his knees in his change stall. And every time he played butch, he'd have it on and it would just be hilarious. And it was so intense. And the thing I loved about Steph is like he could play me. It was not very good. And he would beat you 21 nothing, And he would be chirping you like, get out of here. You're not good enough. Like it was, he was the best. That's, that's great. Um, last couple questions here. Let me find some good ones. Um, here's a good one. Um, what was it like playing with a guy like Bugard? Uh, the Boogie Man was a fun player to watch and I sure miss him. This is from Devin. Um, I have this funny, I remember this. You might not love this story because it revolves around you being a healthy scratch, if I remember. Mm. But um, I remember getting a text message from him while I was walking around the Stone Arch Bridge one game day asking if you and him if were in the lineup that night because otherwise <laughs> you guys were going to go to pizza or something. Um, you know, like I don't know why that pops in my head, but I just remember this text I got from him. Well, for sure, if he was coming out, that was when Jacques was a coach. It was Jacques you never knew till right before yes, warm-up. exactly. I remember times where Mario Tremblay, he'd like run off the bus – 
be running beside you and going into the room to take your jersey down. And literally, you'd watch them take your jersey down and be like, oh, I guess I'm not playing. <laughs> I got to interrupt you. Do you remember us being outside the room at Rexall Place in Edmonton and you telling me, you know, you talking to me like you're going to play that night. It was a second of back-to-back. And I said, are you sure you're playing that night? And you're like, yeah. And I said, well, look in the room. Mario's walking away with your jersey right now. So. <laughs> I remember that. The one I remember is Anaheim. It was like literally like I was walking in the room and there's Mario taking the jersey and giving it to Tony. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I guess I'll get my bike ride in. <laughs> yeah. But no, you but know what's funny? Is, you know what's funny? Like a lot of people from around here almost forget that I played with them and then you know his name comes up about like you know the toughest guys that ever played and I think people don't realize that you know he was a scary individual like he that that one stretch I think it was my second year where you know he knocked out Todd Fedoric and he knocked out Gillies and he went on a run there where he opened up the eyes of the whole NHL like I always tell jokes that like I think Jacques would tell him just to stand up on the bench just to calm calm the calm the play down you know what I mean? He'd just give him a look and Boogie would know stand up and everybody would calm down. But he was a gentle soul. Like, you know, he didn't say much in the room. He was a good guy. He liked to have a good time, but he was so quiet. Like, it makes you go back and wonder, like, how much pain was he in? Because, you know, he always had that back problem, but he never would tell you and he never would show it. And he was so happy just to be in the NHL. And, you know, he was a good teammate and you know, he would do anything for anybody on the ice. And, you know, you always felt comfortable, definitely, when he was on your team. Yeah. I think there's a great story. I got to look it up if it's true of Tommy Thompson when he was sort of, you know, get trying to get to know him. And two day, two nights in a row, he takes him to dinner after games, once to the keg and the other to McDonald's and asked him, what do you like better? <laughs> and he goes, well, if you like the keg better, Here's what you got to do if you expect to make it to the NHL. Yeah. That's a great story. If that, I gotta. Sometimes you know. Sometimes you you hear these stories and you wonder how how accurate they are. But I'm pretty sure that was yeah. Boogie and Tommy Thompson. Uh, last yeah. question. You mentioned Jacques. Tell us about Jacques. Uh, this is from Nick Johnson. Any stories from Jacques Lemaire you're willing to share? Locker room speeches, things he did with the team, etc. Well, to be honest with you, locker room speeches there wasn't very many. You know, he he was a man of few words. Um, <laughs> He, there wasn't a lot of video. There wasn't a lot of, of raw. There was never raw raw speeches. And you know what's funny, honestly, Mike, and I tell people this all the time is, when I played there, I would say that I'd probably tell you I didn't really like him because he didn't talk to you. He 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 didn't give you much feedback. But now that I'm a coach and and I've been around the game as long as I have, like he was so brilliant and so much so ahead of his time in practicing game situations and you know so upfront like I remember times where uh you know you had was it Todd White uh Butchie and uh sorry Pierre Marc Bouchard and Brian Rolson playing on a line and if they had a couple games where they didn't have a good F3 he would just threaten them and say like if you don't if somebody's not high I will make one of you high and nobody wanted to be that designated high guy so they all may always made sure they were done and you know There'd be times where he thought Marion Gabrick didn't have good legs, so then Marion would have to come do extra bag skating with us guys that were scratch. Like, he didn't care who you were. He just was trying to get the best out of you all the time. And I was telling somebody, I think I did an interview yesterday with a kid uh, from Laurentian University in Canada just going over some stuff, and I told him a story, and it's the honest truth, Mike, is I can't, I owe Jacques everything because I played in the NHL. And the reason was is I was six foot five. 
I wasn't tough, like fighting wise, but I played hard and, and I had a big shot. But every, every time I got called up to Atlanta or every time I, you know, was in camp with Calgary, they expected a certain type of defenseman. And when I had a good start to the season, when I told you earlier about Tom Lynn, I remember it was either LA or Minnesota. Who am I going to sign with? And Tom Lynn was very honest saying, when I look at our depth chart in Houston, you'll be at the top of the list. If you have a good start, you'll get an opportunity. And my agent saying, you know, in Minnesota, the benefit to Minnesota is they always give guys opportunities that earn it. So I was like, all right, let's go to Minnesota. I went down to Houston. We had a great start. I got an opportunity. I remember it being like my second practice. We're at the Parade Ice Garden. And we're doing power play. And I wound up, took a slap shot. But I passed it. And Jacques stopped practice, came up to me and goes, hey, kid, I thought you have a big shot. I'm like, yeah. He's like, we'll use it. I'm like, okay. And then sure enough, I scored twice in my first game because I took yep. used my shot. And like, he was, he never, I mean, you had a different view. You're up top. You have ideas. Every fan has different ideas. But for me, he always put players in the position to their strengths. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't just say, hey, oh, you're a 100-point scorer. We're going to put you on the fourth line. Like, if you got called up and you're a scorer, you play in the power play. And if you're, you know, you're, you're a tough guy, you, you better fight. Like, he always put guys to their strengths, I believe. And that's why... He made me, gave me the opportunity to actually be myself and be the player that I was. And I was able to show what I could do. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I don't have, um, you know, I don't keep in touch with him much, but yet I have, uh, and I think it's mutual, you know, the utmost respect for him. And, uh, and, it, and I learned probably more. I've covered so many coaches in my now 26 years covering this league. It's crazy. Um, and yet I feel like still like I didn't really learn the game until I started covering Jacques, you know, because he, he just listened to him and he was, he, he was a man of few words, but you just realized the way he saw the game was special. And there's a reason why he was a hall of fame player. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember the year end, one more story, like year end meeting, yep. we had a, the one run one year, Martin school was there. I remember. So it probably would have been my third year. No, probably my second year. We had a decent, you know, we we're a good team. And then, um, the end of the year meeting comes and we're all sitting in the room and Doug Risebo does his speech and Doug goes to Jacques, you got anything to say? And he's like, Nope. And he's like, numbers on the wall, come see me. And there was like five numbers. That's it. And it was the most random. It wasn't like five young guys. It was like, you know, Kim Janssen, like whatever it was, it was like numbers that you're like, that's all he wants to see. And it was literally go get your equipment and go home. Like he just was that's so exit meeting. Yeah. Like, but he wasn't, there was no BS. It was like, yep. you knew where you're at all the time, even though he didn't talk much, but by if you were playing or not. And yeah. I remember him saying to me, like, he, something that was random that I brought everywhere I went is I always warmed up hard and on the ice. You know, like warm up where guys go helmets off and mess around. I warmed up so hard because I remember one game, I came off the ice and Jacques goes, you're warm up, too slow, too slow. You're not going to be good. And then, it stuck with me that I always went full out because he was a guy that would come out and he didn't just watch warm up to watch them. Like he would actually watch his own players and see who was engaged and who was ready to go. Yeah. Well, Fazi, I really appreciate it. I mean, I, those, those early years. So, you know, I, I started covering the, the wild during your rookie year and, you know, those teams still to me are the most special. Those four or five teams that you were on those first, first four or five years, the, the great players that I'm still in touch with. You mentioned Todd White. I talked to him all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian Ralston, Nick Schultz. I mean, the, it was just such a great locker room. Uh, and, and 
different type of player than you see today. I mean, you know, and maybe it's a social media thing. Like players are almost scared of the reporters now. And it just felt like we had, you know, really good mutual relationships back in the sort of, you know, quote unquote old days, even though that was the 10th season. I was already covering the NHL when you made your debut. Yeah. You know what, Mike? I think the biggest thing that I've learned over the years is that at the end of the day, you know, guys like yourself, you're just doing your job. And usually when you're saying stuff, it, you're not wrong. It's just hard to hear sometimes as a player. Yeah. And that's something that's just never going to be easy. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm sure I'm wrong at some time. <laughs> that actually brings me to the last question. Russo Slacks, uh, who's a parody count on Twitter, goes, uh, Curtis, who is, your, who is the worst reporter you had to deal with? I, I think we know who he's trying to allude to. Uh, you know who was probably... No, you know who was probably the <laughs> hardest? And it, was, it had to do with my situation, though. I went into Edmonton on a on a two-year deal and you know they gave me what they thought was a good contract and I was really happy with it like I to this day it set me up for a long time but Jim Matheson was always really tough on me and I always felt like I had good rapport with you and um, I forget who the guy in Tampa was but he was always super super nice Damian Cristadero maybe yeah yeah really good guy but Jim Matheson always felt like he was just very very negative and there's the other guy in Minnesota. Who is the other guy in Minnesota that I thought was really negative? He wrote for the other paper. Tom, Tom Powers, the no, columnist. No, uh, uh, Brian Murphy. <laughs> no, he's a he's he's a, he's a he's an editor, I think. Uh, John Shipley. No, oh, I can't think of the uh, name. Uh, it's funny. His brothers, John Shipley. Oh, I, I can't. I can't remember. I forget. And I always felt like in Minnesota, he was always just. Always negative. There was always an editorial. It was like he was never around, and then all of a sudden, I think you're talking about Tom Powers. Well, maybe unless you mean the Star Tribune that I was at, Jim Suhan or somebody. Yeah, honestly, I can't remember now. But it was always, (laughs) you know, I think a lot of guys appreciate it because guys like yourself, they put in a lot of time. They're always around, and they have a good, you know, finger on the pulse. And it's the guys that weren't around much that have all these opinions, and then that's where players get so (laughs) rattled. Yeah, well, we call columnists hit and runners because uh, they they could bash the team and then never show up yeah. for the next couple of weeks. Exactly. We're the ones that got to take the brunt of the, <laughs> the pain the next day. Well, that's how I always learned in this business is that if you are going to critique the team, you better show up in that locker room the next day and be accountable. Like if I'm asking you as a player to be accountable, I better show up. Well, Mike, you're and, doing a good uh, job because I was listening to Bob <laughs> McKenzie on Spit and Chicklets last night, and he he made a comment about. Uh, the beat writers have put in all the work, and you were the first name that came up. So it's pretty good when you're getting uh, called oh, out awesome. by the uh, Godfather himself. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And Curtis, I, I can't wait to see where you land next. Hopefully, it's in Minnesota. I'll have to put in a word for you with Bill Guerin uh, or Bomber or, or one of the yeah. Eddie Hendricks or somebody there. Um, but, uh, you know, you are always a class act. There's something about defensemen, too. Like, you know, whether it's Schultz or, you know, Brad Hunt or Nate Prosser, it's like the nicest people. Um, it's because you're the smartest, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, we're always so. the last last line of defense, so we we uh, we always got to be smart. Yeah, send my best to your family. Uh, you know, to let Bob know that he got a shout out on the uh, on the podcast <laughs> here, will. and uh, best to your wife. I always I still remember her. Also, when uh, you know, I know I think she was your fiance at the time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but when you broke your femur, just uh, how she was always at your side and just uh, so so sweet and um, and uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun, Curtis. Okay, Mike, no, it was a pleasure, and uh, wish you guys the best. That uh, Capristoff's pretty fun to watch, so I'm pretty jealous you get to watch it all the time. 
Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Uh, Wild fans deserve a, a game breaker. And again, if you uh, check out our comments section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app and rate and subscribe for Straight from the Source on Apple. If you aren't already a subscriber, make sure you go to theathletic.com slash straight from the source and receive a subscription for just $3.99 a month. Thanks, Curtis. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike.